Would you turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book from the beginning in your Bibles? Exodus chapter 7 is where we're going to cover today. We'll cover the whole chapter. We'll read it all in its entirety. Also, the sermon notes are available at novachurch.org or on your Nova Community Church app. You know, in Exodus, Pharaoh is like us. It's kind of a big statement, but it's not a stretch to stop and think that Pharaoh is just like us. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's a great question. And I don't think we pay too much attention to this. But humankind tends to think that we're on this upward trajectory. That we're moving from darkness to more enlightenment every single day. It'd be awesome if that were true. And I have to ask, is that true? Are we on this upward ascent? I mean, it was only 10 years ago that we used to make these impassioned pleas for weeks before daylight savings time. We would tell people, daylight savings time is coming. Remember, mark in your calendars, make a note to yourself, put it on your refrigerator. We'd post it all over social media and say, Please remember before you go to sleep on Saturday night to spring forward, right? But now, 10 years later, here we are, and we have smartphones, right? Smart watches, smart clocks, and smart appliances that all just sort of magically spring forward and fall back all on their own. We're so advanced. Cars are more fuel efficient and electricity is, we harness it through the sun. Light bulbs are brighter and they use less power. Even protein is better for you as long as it's pasture-raised, right, or wild-caught. As long as it's grass-fed or plant-based or certified organic. It's, it's really good for you. It's better than it's ever been. And what I'm saying is we think that life is better today than it was 50 years ago, but the real root issue at play in the heart of man is the root issue of the heart of man. It's not a stretch to say that Pharaoh in the book of Exodus is just like us. And, and we're going to dive into the first of the plagues that was put on uh, the Egyptians in our time together this morning. But what I thought, what I thought we'd do is to better, to better understand the plagues at least, is we have to see that God is answering this question. And Pharaoh's question is our question today. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? 
It's a question he asked. It's a question that we ask. It's certainly a question that our culture asks. It's interesting to note that Pharaoh is living in a similar world than we're living in. He lived in a pluralistic society. In, in a pluralistic culture, that means, by and large, that it's not offensive for Pharaoh to, uh, to Pharaoh that the Hebrews believe in God. That's not offensive to him at all. In fact, the Egyptians, they had 114 gods. And the Hebrews had one God. And right now, we're all living in a pluralistic society. It's not offensive that you would believe in God. In, in, in America, only 4% of Americans are atheistic. Now, they have a loud voice, but there's not, not too many of them. It's not offensive to Pharaoh that the Hebrews have a God. What is offensive is that God has some sort of authority over him. And it's the same thing we struggle with, the same thing our culture struggles with. It's not a problem for us to believe in God unless you're saying, your God is telling me how to live. Now, if there's one thing people cannot tolerate, it's God getting all up in my business, right? It's, it's infringing on my freedoms and, and my rights and my desires. Now, in a multi-generational church like what we have here, all ages, all generations, uh, we learn, and it's a good thing for us to learn the different perspectives of the different generations that we have in our church. I, I learned something this week. I, I watched a training video, an, an equipping video by Dr. Chong, and he was talking about the different generations and the different spiritual questions that I asked, that, that, that each generation asks. And so they're generational perspectives. So let's kind of go through this. I'll, I'll go through it real quick, and I think we can all participate, and I think we can all relate in some way. These are just generalities, but if you were born, if you were born before 1946, you're part of the greatest generation. Now, how many of you were born before 1946? Raise your hand. Look at that. Go ahead and clap. This is the greatest generation right here. We're so glad that you are here today. Then the next generation is called the baby boomers, right? You were born between 1946 and 1964. Raise your hands proudly. There you go. Look at that. Yeah, you didn't really have to clap for that generation, but I guess we'll clap for each. Um, the spiritual question that boomers are asking is, what is true? What is true? And, and how do we live that truth out? If you could prove that Christianity is true, then you would orient your life around that. That's the boomer generation. The next generation is Generation X. If you were born between 1965 and 1980, raise your hand. There you go, good. Oh yeah, yes, please, please clap for the, wow, not a big clap for Generation X, but <laughs> what does that say? What, what's that saying to us? 
Your spiritual question that, that, that the Xers are asking is, what is real? So the boomers asked, what is true? The Xers are asking, what is real? And, and Gen Xers look at the boomers, that generation before them, and they say, boomers live to work. But us, my generation, Xers, we want to work to live, right? And this is a generation that grew up in a culture where institutions were failing all around. Leaders that we looked up to were failing. The economy was tanking. Marriages were falling apart, and so were families. And so the Xers here have this certain wound because things were failing all around them. The Xers are a generation of mistrust. And you can ask any generation Xer that that generation can spot a hypocrite, a phony, and a liar a mile away. And so what they wanted to do, because everything was failing around them, was they just wanted to be part of a community and call, call us friends. We, they wanted to have friends, right? Friends need to be honest and friends need to be authentic. And they just want people to be vulnerable. Just be real with me, bro. We want you to walk your talk. That's Gen X. Now, the next generation are the millennials, born between 1981 and 1996. Raise your hand if you're a millennial. Okay, there you go. Looking good out there, millennials. All right. <laughs> and the spiritual question that millennials are asking is, what is good? What is good? And while Xers are just sort of hanging out with friends, Millennials say, let's just not hang out. Let's do something together. The millennials are the ones who lived really scheduled lives. Tons of extracurricular activities. They were always busy doing something. In groups, in teams. This was the generation of, of teams and groups and working together to change the world for good. These are the millennials. And these are, this is the group where if you bought a pair of shoes from Tom's or Zappos, they, they, you buy that pair and then that company would get a pair and give it to someone who didn't have shoes. It was the same, it's the same generation where they experienced where Warby Parker, you could buy some glasses and then Warby Parker would go to another country where people needed glasses and give out pairs of glasses to people. They want to contribute, the millennials do, to something good happening in the world. And then there's Gen Z, right? 1997, born between 1997 and 2012. Raise your hand if you're a Gen Zer. Love it! Love the Gen Zs. Love you guys. Yeah. And your spiritual question is, what is beautiful and what is just? This is the artist generation. This is the idealist generation. While previous generations, the Gen Z looked at the previous generations and they say, you guys are so angry. You guys are so bitter. You guys are so cynical. And Gen Z seeks justice and peace and harmony and beauty. And where millennials built things for good, Gen Z is going to take that, that thing that was built for good, and Gen Z is going to take that and make it beautiful. Make it for justice. They're gonna, it's, 
going to be artistic. It's going to be idealist. Now, these are all the generations, and, and we have them in our church. It's, it's beautiful to be part of a multi-generational church like this and understand perspectives and, and, and be able to live and work and have community together and worship together. Now, cultural anthropologists are saying that we live in a post-Christian culture. And this new thing is not just post-Christian, we're living in a post-truth culture. That is, our current culture says, who cares what's true as long as I feel good, right? It doesn't matter what the facts are. If I get to choose what makes me happy, that's the most important thing. They'll say, there's no truth except that which makes me happy. And what makes me happy, it rules the world. Therefore, there is no authority but my authority alone. Now you take all of that to its logical conclusion, and you got a world on fire, right? It's a big dumpster fire of a world that we're dealing with right now. So how do you do life in a truth-doesn't-matter culture? Remember, we live in this pluralistic society, and most people are pretty cool with God as long as he doesn't make us do things that we don't want to do. We think God is awesome as long as he doesn't meddle in my business. He doesn't mess with my personal life or my romance. He doesn't mess with my money or my relationships and my work life. But the Lord doesn't play games with us like that, does he? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? If you're a Christ follower today, my guess is that there's areas in your life that the Lord is encouraging you. He's knocking on, your, on the door of your heart. He's, he's leading you towards more obedience to him. And you're either trying to ignore him or you're digging your heels really deep in the sand. And what you're really asking is this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Because the Lord, he cares for you and he loves you. He's going to answer that question that's on your heart right now. Let's get to our text. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites." And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, 
Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Now, let's get to the first round of the real throwdown here, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take your hand, uh, <clears throat> take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness, but until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Now, do you see the answering of this question, the question of who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It's, it's happening right here. Then God says through Moses, verse 17, by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish on the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. And the fish on the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. This is God's word for us today. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The Nile River and the Nile Basin form the economic power in abundant life in this part of the world. In fact, the Egyptians, they had multiple gods over the Nile. And they prayed and sacrificed to these gods because as the Nile goes, so goes the Nile Basin. And as the Nile Basin goes, so goes Egypt. It was a big, big deal. And all their power and all their wealth were caught up in the Nile. The primary god of the Nile was a goddess called Hopi. And Hopi is there to provide fullness of life for all the Egyptians. They sacrifice to Hopi and they worship Hopi. And because Hopi is going to provide for them, 
and give them abundant life. I think there's an instinct that exists in every human being all over the globe. We want a full life. We want an abundant, we want a good life. We want a life that's on its way up. And everyone has in their imagination what a good life looks like and what it feels like, what it smells like, what it tastes like. You just, you just know when you're having a good life. And everyone has this in their imagination, and that's what Hapi has to offer, a full life, a rich life to everyone. And God in his mercy is now revealing to Pharaoh and the Egyptians that who they're worshiping is just false, is just phony. The Lord exposes this God for what she is, just a big lie. The, the reality of the fullness of life you and I desire is found only in Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that if you're an unbeliever, that if you don't believe in Jesus today, that you're not going to have a good life. Because I think you could. I think you could eat, drink, and be merry and, and be an unbeliever. And I think you could not yet know Jesus personally and live and laugh and love just a little. You could have a good life, but you will not flourish as God has designed you in that deepest possible level outside of being reconciled to your God. Jesus said, I've come, to, that, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly or, or a, a full life. And Jesus saying, is saying that the hungriest part of your heart will be satisfied only in me. And God will oftentimes, though, reveal to us the false idols that we thought were going to give us a full life. And when that happens, we feel this excruciating pain and heartbreak. In the midst of all of that pain, God shows us that things cannot satisfy us like we hoped that they would. God, who is rich in mercy, shows us that you need God. You don't need that person or this person, him or her or that thing to make you happy and have a full life. And it's just part of growing and maturing as a believer in Jesus that he exposes this idolatry to us in our life. We see it in relationships all the time. I'm in love, right? I got a little money in my pocket and I'm in love. And so you want to sing and you want to dance and you're just so feeling so full in your life. But when we have trusted in someone for fullness of life, that life will eventually not become very full. It becomes very empty. And it is with God's mercy that he helps us that when we chase after false idols in our life, things that won't ultimately satisfy us, they can't ultimately satisfy us, then eventually we'll run to the one who will bring us full life. One of the heartbreaking things, though, here, as we read in our text, in the first plague, is there's just no clean water, but blood everywhere. I mean, we, we kind of have that today. I mean, we have bottles of water that we enjoy, right? Not many people that I know of 
drink just regular tap water, right? It's like, tap water? What, am I an animal, right? I mean, just kind of feed that to your pets, but everything's got to be filtered. Everything's got to be bottled. Everything, ah, it tastes so good, right? In all the dirty, bloody water, Pharaoh is probably thinking that his magicians can do something special and give him some clean water to drink. But because Pharaoh's heart was so hard, he went back to the palace and the Egyptians dug ditches next to the Nile to get clean water. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I can go all in with God, but look at this. I can kind of carve out my own way in my own life, and I can just kind of do my own thing and get a little clean water here. We begin to harden our hearts toward the mercy of God and exposing all the pursuits that we have in vain. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does. He hardens his heart against the mercy of God. And sometimes the mercy of God, sometimes it wounds you to reveal to you where you've been wrong. And it's, his, it's in his kindness that he wounds you, not in his wrath. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Pharaoh is satisfied now with digging a little ditch beside the Nile, this massive force of water the Nile River. And so he's sort of satisfied. We'll just dig this little ditch so I can get a little sip of disgusting, dirty water. But God provides mercy, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it happens all the time, even in this day. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I got two questions for reflection for us today. And the first question is this. What story what story does my life tell? What story does my life tell? What God am I, am I showing to people by how I live? Who is it in your life that calls the shots? Who in your life chooses right or wrong? Who is it in your life that dictates your money or your relationships? the words that you use, how you raise your kids, who governs that system in your life? Because whoever calls the shots in your life is your God. And it could be big G God, or it could be little g God. In the first verse of our text today, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Have you ever thought about this? You know, it's that person that sits next to you in math class. It's that neighbor in the apartment next door. It's your coworker that you see eight or more hours a day, five days a week. You may be the only Bible study that they're ever going to get. Your life. What are you teaching them by how you live your life? The Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church in a town called Corinth. And Corinth is a party city. Corinth is 
well, whatever you do in Corinth stays in Corinth. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What God are you showing to others by how you live? And what story does my life tell? Second question for reflection today is, obedience, or the second question is, if I'm obedient to God, will I get what I want? It's a good question. If I'm obedient to God, will I eventually get what I want? See, obedience is obedience even when it ends in failure. A few chapters ago, Moses, God tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, and Moses has excuses upon excuses upon excuses upon excuses about why he's not going to do that. But finally, he caves into God and says, okay, and he goes and talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets mad, he kicks him out, and then... Pharaoh takes it out on the other Hebrews, and he makes them work harder and harder. And now the Hebrews then are mad at Moses. Obedience led Moses to having a really bad day. And here in chapter 7, we see that Moses is obedient to what God says. And Pharaoh, he hardens his heart. And some of you, some of you are obedient to God right now and you're not seeing immediate wins in your life. And I encourage you to pursue obedience to God. And things may seem worse now than they've ever been. Let me remind you that obedience is only measured by obedience, not by things getting better, not by miracles, not by being blessed more financially, not by having a great spouse, not by having compliant kids. Obedience is just obedience. Obedience is still obedience, even when it, when it appears to end in defeat. Because a Jesus follower will always eventually win. When you give your life to Jesus, you'll, you won't always be on this upward trajectory, but in the end, when it really counts, and when nothing else really matters, and eternity is in heaven is guaranteed for all those who put their trust in Jesus. And there's going to be some church leaders that you're going to read about, they write books, you're going to hear on podcasts, you see them on TV, they preach in churches on Sunday, just like we're, what we're doing right now, and they're going to promise you that obedience is going to make you wealthy, they're going to promise you that obedience is going to make you healthy and happy and beautiful and popular and smart. But you're not going to find that here. We don't sell that here. We look at what the gospel says and we believe it and we preach it. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's a perfect example of what I'm talking about right here. The writer of Hebrews says this, and what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, 
who through faith, they conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And you, you think, that's what I want. All that power, all that miracle, all that good stuff. Verse 35, it goes on to say, Women received their dead raised to life again, and there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. But some faced jeers for their obedience and flogging, some even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, and they were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword and went about in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Pharaoh asks the question. It's the same question that we ask. Who is the Lord that I should obey? Remember, obedience is only measured by obedience. For the Christian, I guarantee you, for the Christian, this world will have pain. You will be hurt. You will be defeated at times. You will be lonely. You will be betrayed. You will have conflict. And you will most likely get sick. But Jesus promises that's as close to hell as you're ever going to get. God loves you and longs to draw close to you, to bring you peace and rest. And one day, he's going to safely take you into his arms in heaven. Let's pray together.